0: Hello and welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. My name is Simon Kelly and today I'm going to be taking you through the best, the most exciting and the most wonderful stuff that we managed to put out in October 2019. Bit of a variety this month, a whole range of stuff from conferences to papers to journal club to some really quite controversial stuff which we'll come to in a minute. So we're going to kick off with a conference, and it's not a conference that I went to this time, makes change, but Pete Hume, who's one of my colleagues in emergency medicine here in Verchester, who went over to the tactical trauma conference over in, let's see if I can pronounce this correctly, Sundsvall, Sundsvall in Sweden, And he spent some time over there. He was talking on the response that we had here in Manchester to the Ariana Grande bombing, which you'll remember, which involved a lot of paediatric casualties, presented quite a few difficulties and problems and management issues around managing that large volume of paediatric casualties. So Pete's got a really great presentation on that. And he went out to do that. But he also spent a lot of time listening to other things that were going on. Got quite a lot out of it. There were some really great talks by The Sound of Things. Um, Jeff Yost speaking about the Las Vegas shooting in October 2017. Again, a, a very, very significant incident. One of the things that came out of that, and again, one of the things that we taught a lot here, is the importance of using bystanders in the response to these kind of incidents. Because they are the people who were there at the scene. I don't know whether you've seen the video footage from the stabbing that took place in London um, this month, in fact just yesterday, when the assailant was taken down by members of the public, uh, including one who was armed with a narwhal tusk, which has got to be a unique event. But the whole point is that a lot of medical care and a lot of actions take place before the emergency services and before the medical services arrive. And we have to understand that and we have to work with that. And there's a nice talk here and some good summary points from... Pete on the blog, which you should have a look at, that takes us through the importance of that and how we can work with them. There was also some really interesting things on here from Kate Pryor, um, who I'm sure you know from Twitter, looking at how leadership works, and particularly leadership around tactical care and emergency situations. And again, other stuff in the conference about the need to practice for rare events and the need to have emergency drills and practice for them. I think there's some really, really cracking stuff in there. And I, I would recommend that if you are interested in tactical medicine, clearly go and have a look at this. If you are interested in emergency medicine. I think the lessons that we can learn from these rare events is important. And I do like the thing from Kate Pryor. In fact, I think it might have come from Mike Abernathy, who calls it something called the Homeboy Ambulance Network, aka non-medical transport, where the casualties are dropped off at our hospital by their friends. That's actually a lot quicker. And again, if you look back on the St. Eminence blog, it's something we've talked about before, particularly in penetrating trauma, that the time from injury... To definitive care needs to be as short as possible, and any intervention that you do between those two events, and often definitive care for penetrating injury is is surgery. Anything that you do between those two time points has to have added value. So it either has to be done because the patient's so sick, or it has to be done because it's going to aid the person's recovery. My observation in a lot of our practice is that we will often do things because we think it's the right thing to do and because we can do it, not necessarily because we need to do it. And I think in these situations it really clarifies that importance of keeping our trauma patients moving towards their definitive care and not just doing things because we like to do them. So great blog, have a look at that and see what you think. We've then got three blogs by Chris Gray, member of the St. Emmons team, from the Arkem Conference that was held up in Gateshead at the end of October 2019. This is the annual scientific conference, really great conference, and I strongly recommend you to go to it next year because it's here in Manchester and I'm kind of in charge of it, so please come. And it is a really great event. It brings together emergency clinicians, nurses, doctors, paramedics. Increasingly, we want to attract people more than just doctors to these conferences to come along and to hear about the the best and the most exciting trials that are out there. Now, we were hoping to hear about a number of trials on the day. Unfortunately, some of the ones that were discussed we can't even talk about now because they're not out in the public domain. So the one that I would really love to tell you the results of is something called the NOPAC study, which is about the use of tranexamic acid for nosebleeds, which I know is incredibly popular at the moment. But does it work? Well, I know. I was at the conference and I heard the results, but I can't tell you. I'm so frustrated. But don't worry about that. It will be out very soon. And I think you'll find the results very interesting. We also heard about the CAPIT study, use of antibiotics in paediatric pneumonia. Again, I can't tell you the results, it's so frustrating. And we also heard a lot about tranexamic acid in relation to the forthcoming CRASH-3 trial, which I'm going to tell you about in a bit, in a second. The results for that weren't out, but there was a fascinating discussion with Ian Roberts about the background behind uh, tranexamic acid, its mechanisms, why it's so controversial, and why there's such an incredible divide between the two sides of the Atlantic and Australasia, where there's Real differences in opinion about how we interpret the evidence. So, fascinating stuff there. There was also the results were presented of the tired study, which is the first, I think, of the trauma or the Trainees Emergency Research Network or the Turn Network set up by Arkem. I think with Dan Horner leading this, and it was the first. Idea that we can get out there and we can survey and we can use this incredible population of emergency clinicians across the country to do rapid research. So, the Tired study was really looking at how much fatigue we have as emergency physicians in our day to day work. So they looked at all grades from F1 to consultant across the UK, 4,600 responses, amazing, which is a 77% re- response rate, which is amazing. And they used a tool which is called the Need for Recovery Score. The Need for Recovery Score basically measures on a 0 to 100 and measures well, how, much, well, how much recovery you need based on how hard you're working. And interestingly, here's the headline results, it will be published soon, is that the number they came out with 73 what does that mean? Well, if you're working in an Iranian mine, which is the highest previous score for Need for Recovery, you get a score of 55. So the implication there is that our trainees and our consultants are working really hard. Now, so some caveats. Here, get even worse scores in those who dif- report that they've got difficulty accessing or requesting leave or study leave, and that's a real issue really interestingly, and perhaps surprisingly, is that the older you are, the lower your score. Now, there's two ways I can think about that. One is, as you get older, your job gets easier. It does. Promise me it does. And secondly, maybe you become more resilient because you've been doing the job longer. That's also possible. And the third one, which I think is a little bit more controversial, but is actually possibly the one that I believe in, there's no evidence, this is just my conjecture, is that the people who are sensible enough at an earlier stage, to realise that this is not the job for them, left. And the only people who are left are the ones who have particularly high levels of resilience. Now, that's completely controversial. Lots of people will argue with me against it. I know it's purely conjecture, but we have to think about this. Are we actually losing good people along the, the way because the job's just too tough and the need for recovery is just too great and that only the people who've got low levels of need for recovery get through? I think it's a tough one. Definitely want to hear more about this and I definitely want to hear more from the TURN network because I know they've got quite a few other studies on the go at the moment, particularly one around subarachnoid hemorrhage about whether or not we really need to do LPs. So lots coming out of there. I won't go through all the studies and all the presentations. You can have a look online and go through them yourselves. Chris has done some great summaries, but it's three days of work and we don't have time to go through it here. Next I just want to briefly talk about the European Resuscitation Council meeting in Slovenia. We've done a separate podcast on this. We did some nice sound bites with Andy Lockie and colleagues and that was really great fun. A couple of things, just reminders from there. One is this idea about the chain of survival, that if you've probably seen the chain of survival before, you know that you've got to have early recognition and call for help, then early CPR, then early defibrillation, then good post-resuscitation care. And it sometimes feels that we put all of our efforts into post-resuscitation care and we're all into ECMO. Well, actually those four elements are not even the biggest impact is going to be on early recognition and call for help and that's where things like the good sam app come in and again you've will seen the good sam app on the st germain's website if you haven't got it on your phone already please download it it's amazing i've got to say i've got it on my phone i have been to oh gosh how many have been to this year six um call outs of which two have been cardiac arrests one has been a significant medical emergency where i, I probably reckon we made a big difference and two others were actually it was a bit of a false alarm but i didn't mind going anyway so please do that i think it's really important there was also some really interesting things around the use of hypothermia in post-cardiac arrest i know post ttm1 uh, targeted temperature management we thought that maybe hypothermia wasn't as amazing as 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 it as it was made out to be And there was some information at ERC that suggested that people had stopped doing temperature management, i.e., TTM1 said 33 or 36. But on the results of TTM1, people just stopped looking at the temperature at all. And there was some evidence presented that we'd actually seen an increase, yep, an increase in the number of patients who are dying post arrest. And it's thought that that's possibly could be due to us taking our eye off the ball in terms of temperature management so have a look at your icus have a look at your eds about what you're doing post cardiac arrest and even if you're not going to 33 and you're not doing the 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 lower temperatures fine but really make sure you're managing your temperatures uh, appropriately and of course ttm2 which is an earlier trial of hypothermia is currently running and we're recruiting that we're recruiting to that here in manchester at the moment. There's another couple of papers um, put out on the blog, and we put out the Tilly study. This is Dan Horner's work on thromboprophylaxis in lower limb immobilization. It's quite a long read, this one. I'll try and summarize it. But basically, this is essentially called a systematic review of the evidence out there. But what it essentially says is that the instance of significant DVT in people who have lower limb immobilization is, is, is significantly high, about 2%. And the anticoagulation almost certainly works. Now, that 2%, of course, is global figure. There will be certain people who are much more likely to have it. So having some form of risk stratification tool is clearly very important but there's no clear evidence about which risk stratification tool is the best. So do a risk stratification tool and make a decision. There's one available from Archem, um, which is the GEMNET guidelines, which are very, very good. I would Those are the ones we're using. They're as good as anybody else, so that's the one I would suggest you use. And then if it comes out recommending that you give thromboprophylaxis, what do you give? Well, most studies have used low-necrowate heparin, but many people are now using the DOACs, the um, direct oral anticoagulants, so things like rivaroxaban. But actually, there isn't a huge amount of evidence out there that those drugs are effective in this group. They're likely to be, let's face it, but we don't really have the evidence. So, great piece of work here about something which is quite important, but demonstrating that the level of knowledge and the level of science behind this is still a little bit uncertain. And I think this is going to evolve into future trials. I've got to say, personally, I have dealt with a number of cases over the years when we've had young people, so people in the 30s with lower limb immobilisation, who've come in in cardiac arrest as a result of PE. So I've seen, as an emergency physician, you see the bad side of this. I've also seen a couple of people who've had some significant GI bleeds. So we really do need the evidence out there. And I think if you want to get your head around it, and if you want to know what we should be doing now, and where the research is going, then have a read of Dan's article. I think you'll find it quite useful. Lastly, or not quite lastly, I've got one more after this one and the important one is the post I put together on the top 10 papers for 2018, 2019 for the annual scientific conference. So I love doing these. I've got half an hour to go through the top 10 papers and you can have a look through them yourselves. We've covered a lot of them on the blog as we go through the year, but things like early or delayed cardioversion in recent onset atrial fibrillation, should we be doing it? Well, probably not. Should you ventilate during RSI? So should you keep bagging the patient? Probably should. Should you be giving a cricoid pressure in RSI? Probably not. Should you be giving magnesium in AF? yes you should it's actually quite good so long as you're using it with something else and not just on its own then we've got keppra versus phenytoin for epilepsy no major difference but probably safer to use keppra and um, does pocus pocus hocus pocus point of care ultrasound that is make a difference in cardiac arrest uh yes it does or maybe not so yes it makes you spot more interesting things and do more stuff but actually there aren't that many patients who get better or survive so yes i know depending on what your viewpoint was before you asked the question. Interesting paper on vasopressors in hemorrhagic shock. There's some early work in the AVERT shock trial that suggests it might be a good idea, which is completely contrary to what I've thought about in the past. But it's a small trial, not for prime time yet, but is going to probably appear in a larger paper over the next year or two. And then does every cardiac arrest need to go to the cath lab? Um, Well, the ones with STEMI do. The ones who don't have a STEMI on their ECG, you need to stop and think. It's not a routine. You shouldn't just take them all there it's not been shown to make a big difference. And then finally, a paper on diagnosing PE in pregnancy using the year score, which is interesting. It's got a lot of supporters out there, but actually the evidence for it, it seems to be pretty weak. So that's almost it. Apart from, of course, the CRASH-3 trial. Now the CRASH-3 trial, we've done a separate podcast on. I got together with one of the investigators, Caroline Leach, and we talked through the results there. And we were actually fairly positive about it, to be honest. And it has certainly started to change practice in my part of the world. However, the furore about the results and how they were interpreted and how they were advertised across the FOMED and Twitter world has been, well, I don't know what the word is for. It's a bit embarrassing, really, is is probably the word I would use. But people have got very excited about this. I think it is one of those trials where pretty much everybody who's looked at this agrees on what the data suggests, but then the interpretation of it after that is really quite complex. And it fundamentally falls into the two camps. One camp which says that the... Taking a very strict view, which nothing wrong with that, which is to say that on the basis of the analysis which the authors planned very right at the beginning, it suggests that there's no difference in mortality in the groups treated with the TXA. There's a suggestion that it might work, but to absolutely prove it, probably not. And then there's a group of people who pragmatically say, this is probably the biggest trial we'll ever get of TXA, and it's okay to look at some of the subgroups, some of which were pre-specified by the authors, as it happens, which does show that it has benefit. And certainly, when you delve into it from our perspective, if you look at the patients in whom TXA would be expected to have a benefit then it seems to benefit. So on the balance of probabilities, it's not definitive, it's not absolutely sure, it's not 100%, but on the balance of probabilities, it is changing practice in the UK and we are starting to give TXA and head injury. I suspect it will probably change in national guidance fairly soon. So that's a controversial one. Have a read of that, but please also read the other colleagues around the world who've also commented on the crash 3 trial to get a balanced view and make your own mind up because that's what evidence-based evidence about. You know, you have to make your own mind up because you have to read the data yourself. Don't just believe things on podcasts or blogs so that takes us to the end of October in November quite a few things going on I'm off to India to the to the Asian Conference of emergency medicine which I'm really looking forward to and we've got a couple of blogs uh, knocked up for that keep an eye out for a couple of things we have the resuscitology conference in December all sold out massively sold out I've got more people I've got as many people on the waiting list now as are available to come to the conference it's been a huge success so we're pretty much certain that we're going to run that again in 2020 probably around march so i'll update you on dates that as soon as i can and um, coda is really starting to reveal what it's going to be so that's going to be in september october in melbourne australia next year um, have a look on the blog coming up for the details of what it's actually going to feature because i think it is going to be a bit of a game changer We've also got the ARCHEM conferences in spring in Bournemouth. That's the CPD conference. And then, as I say, big conference for us here because we'll be helping organise the ARCHEM annual scientific conference in Manchester next autumn. So loads of things going on. It's incredibly busy time here, but we are loving it. Uh, Emergency medicine itself, it's insane at the moment. We're seeing record numbers through the door um, week by week some of the toughest days i've ever seen in emergency medicine but within that we're still seeing some incredible cases and doing some incredible work and actually so far teamwork is holding up but crikey it's going to be a tough winter so if you're out there you're working hard you're trying to learn hard you're trying to keep up with stuff you know i salute you work hard do your best but if you need to take a break take a break